I would, hi Maria, I was wondering if that was you. <laughs> um, I read somewhere they're giving all this advice about how to be professional over Zoom. And one of the things they said is don't um, get excited and acknowledge different people, just <laughs> But I actually feel like I want, I need to see a few faces. So Maria came, it's, yeah. it's amazing to see you. Hi. Hi, <laughs> amazing to see you all in this, you know, in this place, this non-place. Yes, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm wondering if maybe one or two other people could um, just unmute for a second. You don't even have to say anything, just so I can see a little bit of a bigger face. Help me to feel your presence. Good morning. Hi, Laura. Hi. Good morning. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Good morning. It's amazing how powerful that is, right? Maybe people have had that experience in Zoom. like a full human being emerges, right? A deep relationship emerges through the face. So thank you. Good to see you. Hi, Lane. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll start if everyone can go back to mute. Thank you for doing that little practice with me. Uh, so this is needless to say, but it's been a Thank you, Ryan. A very intense month. And for some reason, for me, uh, this weekend has felt even like an intensification of the intensity. Uh, some of it may have to do with this, uh, this expression in the news about the peak of the deaths in New York that there is like a rising, this, this getting up to the top of the curve and um, this threat of death all around us. To see, um, as Camille mentioned, coffins going into trucks, makeshift morgues in strange places, mass burials, close to 8,000 New Yorkers dead this week. So here we have death all around us. I don't need to say more. You can been feeling it all week. <clears throat> and then here, strangely, at the same time is spring. It's so powerful. This week is a, a week in which uh, we've ritualized this uh, renewal, resilience, rebirth, this Passover. Emily and I were talking about our um, connection as Catholics to uh, Good Friday and to Easter Sunday. And I keep thinking all week about um, Litchfield Villa. 
you know, <laughs> in Prospect Park where that huge field of tulips, you know, I'm just imagining the tulips and the cherry blossoms and the magnolias all like bursting with life. So, so in my body, uh, many, I imagine for those I talk to like this, this paradox of birth and death. This is what us Buddhists are experts. <laughs> this is what we practice around. So we have many, many teaching stories about birth and death. And I found this one um, last weekend and I took it up. It's a teaching story from Dogen and it's been working on me all week. It's been really a quite a powerful um, Dharma roadmap and a way for help me orient. So I wanted to share this story with you and um, and maybe you'll make your own associations with it. So I thought I'd share it with you. So here is a story. And the story is called The Seven Wise Women and the Shout Without Echoes. So if you want to, as you're listening to this story, you can close your eyes and imagine yourself in this story if you'd like. So once upon a time, there were seven wise women, and they decided one spring morning to meet and walk together. Perhaps they're Dharma sisters. And as they went to go walk, there were many people out and about, as it was the tradition at that time to go outdoors to festivals during what they call the season of praising flowers. <laughs> this is the season of praising flowers. Among the six, seven wise women, one of the women said to the others, Sisters, you and I should not go to scenic parks to partake of worldly entertainments like those people. Instead, let's go together to enjoy the charnel grounds. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it's a, it was a local custom whereby the bodies, dead bodies were left to decay above ground. And one of the seven women, as you might imagine, said, you know, this place is full of decaying corpses. What is such, such a place good for? How could you call it a good place? And the first woman said, sister, let's just go. Very good things are there. So they walked and they entered the forest. And as they entered the forest, the first woman pointed to a corpse. And she said to the other women, the corpse is here, but where has the person gone? And as such happens in all of these stories, all of the women then had a realization. And when they had this realization, heavenly flowers fell from the sky and a voice praised them saying, excellent, excellent. The first woman asked, who is that praising us? from the sky. And the voice from the sky said, I am Indra, guardian of the Dharma. In Hinduism, Indra is an earth deity. Because you have realized the way, my attendants and I rain down flowers upon you. If you need something, please tell me so that I might supply it to you for the rest of your life. Rest of your lives. So the first woman who seemed to be the most wise of the group 
said, all at my house, all my material needs are completely provided. I only want three things. First, I want a tree without roots. Second, I want a piece of land with no north or south. And third, I want a valley where shouts do not echo. So Indra replied, you know, I can give you all material things, but those three things I truly do not have. I'd like to go together with you sacred women, he said, and discuss this with the Buddha. So together they went and walked over to see the Buddha and asked about this. And the Buddha said, Indra, all of the great arhats among my disciples cannot decipher the meaning of this. Only the great bodhisattvas understand this matter. So this this story. And um, right from the beginning, you know, it feels like it's a story for our moment. So who in this group would not be rather going outside right now? Going to visit the flowers, the tulips, going to families for Passover, for Easter, rather than sitting inside our homes, trying to avoid the specter of death. And I was thinking about it, you know, in a, a way this is, this story is, can be seen on so many different levels, but it's a story of, of entering to practice. It's a story of Sangha, you know, so we are seven here, and many of you there, all together in this forest, we're entering the temple. The forest is a temple, right? And we have people like Maria from Seattle and Ben gathering together, all of us, instead of going out and celebrating and, and entering into a practice uh, query together. And what could possibly be good about facing death. What is this moment offering us? And this practice is a, a been a ritualized practice. This practice of looking at decayed corpse, corpse has been a practice since the time of the Buddha that um, there is a, a request in our practice to turn towards what is without any adornments, without sanitizing it, cleaning it up, creating a story about it. And I think um, so much of harm and pain has come out for us because we refuse to look at this. We, we fight tooth and nail to not face this. So it's like this moment is forcing the question for us come sit it's you know the numbers every day look at the numbers you can't you can't miss it every day we have a, a, a ritual here of looking at death we have our we have our memorial service every day and god it was just like a week ago 
you know, it seemed like it was the 40s, the 50,000 every day. Thousands, thousands more. What happens in our bodies as we, as we hear those numbers? So the way the story goes, it seems as if, you know, they walk into the forest, they see the dead body, and they have this realization. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think these women, because they're called wise women, were entering that forest for the first time. I think just like most of us, especially as we get older or we are in certain kinds of situations, it's not the first time we have faced suffering and we have faced death. So the practice is a practice of looking at impermanence, which is, a, which is a primary teaching in Buddhism. This teaching thrusts us into, uh, into realization. And it is, uh, for most of us, we can think about impermanence in a way in which we think Something is solid for a while and then it decays and goes away. You know, we, we think of impermanence as kind of um, a temporary permanence. And, but it isn't, if you look deeply, there is nothing that is solid there. And the whole practice in Zazen, if you allow yourself to see, is that everything is arising and falling away every single moment. As Tia mentioned, you know, on the on the out breath, right before right after the you breathe in, pause, death, breathe out. So this is not an easy practice to do or an easy thing to see. But the practice is to sit quietly in the forest. And when we see and we hear those numbers, or we see the bodies being buried in a field, or a white cloth over a figure, can we stop? Can we sit down? Can we take a moment to feel this is a person's life, this is life. This is somebody who was precious to somebody, who was cared for as a baby and lived a life. So that's what these women were doing and that's what they're encouraging us to do. So to realize this truth of impermanence, I believe involves grieving. So for these seven women, it, it can look like, you know, they pointed the corpse and they had a mental insight. I don't think that's the case. Our bodies and our hearts have to be involved, I think. 
And I believe that this refusal to grieve, we don't want to feel it. But if we refuse to feel that, we refuse to feel what it is to be alive. And I think we also refuse, when we refuse to feel the pain of death, the pain of loss, the pain of impermanence, to take responsibility for the pain of the world. So I, my friend Yael might be here, my therapist buddy, and we were talking the other day and she reminded me of a quote, a, a therapist love, <laughs> many of us, uh, by Jung. He said, uh, neurosis is the avoidance of legitimate suffering. Mm -hmm. So we have to find a way to legitimately suffer. And it's, and it's a conscious suffering, a suffering to um, go towards something, to open up to painful realities. And this moment, I think, is a moment in which I can feel it as I talk to people and be with people. It's almost like we're all breaking open despite ourselves. So when we begin to break open in this way, because the, because the virus is just pushing us in this direction, we don't just mourn what's happening in this moment, but we get to mourn or see or feel into all the things we haven't sufficiently mourned, I think. The harm we inflict on each other, based on hatred and neglect and greed, we can see this and feel this perhaps, hopefully now. Have we really let ourselves mourn the loss of species every single day? There's thankfully more and more articles about this pandemic and how it lays bare, shows us how our society values more, some people at the expense of other people. Can we let ourselves really feel that? There's so many things to say about it. They were saying that um, how all the wealthy countries in the, you know, the US and in Europe are taking all the resources and buying up all the medical equipment. And some poor countries have one fully equipped medical bed for every million residents. Right? We're asked to shelter in and then there's people who have no shelter in. They have no home. I know you're reading these things, but can you really like let it in? These kids who are trying to study at home and have no internet. There is a, one, one last one I'll mention is that 79% um, of New York's frontline workers the nurses, the subway staff, the sanitation workers, 
are African-American or Latino, Latina. And they have no choice but to every day put themselves in harm's way. And they show that if you superimpose a map of where the frontline workers live in New York, over a map of the, at the time, 76,000 confirmed cases in the city, the two are virtually identical. And then you hear about the prisons, right? So these are all tremendous, heartbreaking pieces of data with people behind them. And I would also like to say that um, in order to realize this truth of impermanence, we also have to mourn the more ambiguous and quieted, quieter losses that we have in this moment. So a lot of people have said to me, I feel guilty. I feel bad um, for having feel bad about uh, not being able to have a graduation, you know, when people are dying. And while I agree that uh, not all losses have the same impact, they're all in the, in the heart, you know, can hold the intimate and the vast together. And I actually think that by not allowing ourselves to mourn the tiny little moments, that we actually do not develop the capacity to, to mourn and to be with the pain of the vast with the profound loss. So I think it's important I would invite you to take up this practice of acknowledging the small losses that we're all experiencing without dropping the, the wider perspective. You know, the loss of freedom of movement, of financial stability, of communal rituals, And if we don't do that, if we don't metabolize those losses, they show up in other ways. If we don't sit down and feel them, you see anger, depression, restlessness, agitation, addiction. So those are all signals really from our bodies like something needs to be felt here, taken care of. So I think these wise women were engaging in this kind of practice. And as I imagine them walking into the forest or sitting down to look at the corpse, I don't think they necessarily could look at it at first. And so this, you have to kind of imagine what their practice might be in that forest, that maybe they had to steady themselves first you know, by listening to the birds or the sound of a creek. Maybe they were able to stay still and, and stay there because they had their Dharma sisters with them. And just like we know this practice, this is our practice, our practice is to sit and to do what we can to stabilize our mind and our body and to relax with the experience so we can open up to it. Tia's uh, request for us to practice rain, you know, letting our bodies and minds settle 
and then when we're calm enough and, and we can kind of get the fear in a manageable window, uh, we can um, calm ourselves. And when we calm ourselves, we can concentrate. And then when we concentrate, we can see in more and more detail the arising and falling of everything. You know, one minute agitation, the next minute something else. And in this story, what happens is as they contemplate and sit there, maybe they've gone there hundreds of times, many, many years. They look at that body and something emerges, an insight. And then um, flowers rain down, you know, something changes. You know, both of my parents died in spring. So I think this is also like um, the paradox of so much joy in spring and death. And um, when my dad died, I got a call in the middle of the night that he had died and I was in the city and uh, he was out on Long Island, my family. And Greg heroically drove me two hours to go see him. I wanted to see his body. I had to see his body. And when I saw his body, there was grief, but mostly there was a peace and a silence there. And I do feel like um, that, that in that moment of feeling so deeply, a whole life and a whole relationship, this, like, um, this tenderness and this calm and compassion can arise. And, and then we can see that we don't have to hold like grief and joy as two separate things, you know, in conflict with each other. So then the, then Indra appears, you know, and offers us some kind of confirmation of something. And um, I think people know this, all of you, Sat Sashin, those of you who have sat Sashin, how many of you know this feeling of, of sitting and contemplating and being miserable, you know, uh, pain, boredom, and then all of a sudden there can be this grace, right? Happened to me once at City Center. I was one of my early Sashins. I was sitting and it was a miserable seven day Sashin. I think Blanche was uh, leading it. I, I was miserable through 98% of it. And then I think it was a spring sashin. I remember sitting on the ton and, you know, the light started to appear through the window and I just felt this enormous explosion of joy and gratitude. The flowers. Doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> and then this is my favorite part of the story. There's, there's this, um, pointing the teacher does, this, the wise woman, who I believe is a teacher, about this, um, um, this teaching on impermanence. So no roots. What is a tree without roots? You know, um, you're, when looking at those hurricanes we've seen recently, you can see like those trees just like uprooted and flowing along this river like everything just being pulled along. 
you know? So this is life, it's a rootless flow. Nothing is static or unchanging anywhere. And then this no north or south, right? So this is the teaching when you can quiet your mind and stop perseverating on this and that and who's right and who's wrong and what's bad and what's good, that underneath that, this non-conceptual boundarylessness that includes everything. And then this life, no echo, this leaving of no trace. But this is, this is the most important part of the story, I think. Because if we left it right there, I would be dissatisfied. I didn't like that, I didn't like that to be the ending. So the Buddha talked about the Arhats and he talked about Bodhisattva. And he said, you know, the Arhats cannot understand this, the Bodhisattvas can. So what does this mean? So um, Arhats and have achieved insight. They have seen and maybe had an amazing realization that has felt like a, a kind of freeing up from the samsara of life. But, and at least according to some traditions, their choice is to not to be reborn into that life, to be done. But ours, we have a bodhisattva path. And our path is one in which out of this insight, this tender compassion arises and this clarity. And out of that, we are moved to help. So when the self expands, dissolves, is more uh, fluid and open, our hearts relax, and our view of who we are actually expands to include everybody. So just like the Heart Sutra, you know, no self, self. There are roots. We have a different kind of root that we're hoping to cultivate. And I keep thinking about all of that, um, all of those books and about understanding the, the kind of compassion of trees. We know that they understand in forests, these trees develop these vast networks of roots helped along by the fungi. <laughs> and in these networks, they, they look at the whole system and see who needs water, who needs nutrients. I'll go without a little bit here and I can, I can kind of um, um, move what is needed to help the whole ecosystem. And this is like Kuan Yin's arms, you know? So can we um, develop roots that are not selfish roots, but selfless roots? And there is a north and south. There are people who have more and people who have, uh, are in great need. And can we stop grabbing it all for ourselves? Watch that tendency in us. 
have compassion about it, understanding, but can we, um, can we recognize uh, the context of where we live and that each of our actions, no matter how small, impacts that whole, and we can see it right now in ways that are so obvious and so concrete. We're staying at home to help other beings. And maybe we're looking at our material, our need for material comfort and support, and then looking at, well, for me to go um, dial up and ask for a bag of Cheetos, I'll talk about myself, you know, my, my Cheeto obsession right now. <laughs> you know, that is not, um, that is not with that impact, you know. If I want a bag of Cheetos, the, 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 the monk who has been generously agreed to go walk into that store and risk a little harm has to do that for me to get my bag of Cheetos. That's a, a, you know, a pretty benign example, but you understand you know, that somebody has got to take that risk for us and are taking that risk for us. So the precepts become so important here, you know, in this north and south. And the echo, there is an echo. And there's so much imagery in Buddhism about this hearing the cries, right? They were hearing the cries. Somebody wrote in an article today, now a desperate cry is coming from every corner of the country, but not everyone is shouting and not everyone is equally desperate. So we hear and feel into things as we practice and as we open and as we loosen our boundaries, not just now, but in the past. You know, what is all these things that happened that arrived to this situation where some people are dying at incredibly high rates compared to others and also into the future. So that's the, the echo we hear. And um, one of the echoes is the echoes of our ancestors and um, who have lived through these crises before and have survived. At least some of our ancestors survived and we wouldn't be here today. And uh, just last week, I had um, heard that my uh, Italian great-grandmother and one of her children, two of her children actually, died in the 1918 pandemic. <laughs> that lives in my body. That lives in my nervous system. And I just wanted to share that um, two nights ago, I had a dream. It was actually an anxiety dream about giving a talk. <laughs> I was waiting to give the talk. And I didn't have notes, you know, and then in this dream, somebody passed me a note and they passed me a piece of paper and they said, in this dream, they said, um, write down your song of resilience. Mm. That was their, that was their offering to me. Um, and then I woke up and the next morning I thought about all those Italian folks 
shouting out their song in support of each other and in life. Celebrate life, celebrate heroes, to remind each other that we're together. And now I know seven o'clock every evening, New Yorkers are shouting as well, singing as well. And in the silence of this human retreat into our homes, the earth is singing, right? Air quality is improving. Actually, the, the people who, who, who listen, who, the, who do seismograph, they can hear, you can hear the earth actually more because the human noise is quieted down. And um, there's so many stories about the impact on natural environment, and I just wanted to share a cute one, which is um, I was reading about how in this one zoo, they were trying to get these two pandas to mate for a really long time. And then uh, they couldn't do it, they weren't doing it. And then the zoo closed down. And after the zoo closed down, the pandas went at it. You know? <laughs> they had their, they're able to kind of come back to life and have their time without the eyes of us on them. So, you know, this story, like I said, is not a linear story. You know, it's not a story necessarily of a lifetime of practice. You know, it could be viewed this way. But we could go into the forest every day with our sangha in, in, in spirit and sit down, look at what we have to look at. We could do it in one period of zazen. And we could do it in each moment. So I, you know, thinking about this as a spiral. And then I think the last thing I want to say is, you know, um, it's such a cliche, I hate to say it, but I'll say it, you know, that it's by looking at death that we deeply appreciate life. It's just the way it is. We need to remember death or we take life for granted. We just have an incredible ability to do that. So, you know, I think people are thinking in their minds, you know, when can I start living again? You know, when can I go outside? When can I go to restaurants and visit others and go to the diner <laughs> for us? And, um, you know, that's important, but we don't, our life is not delayed. Our life is here right now. So I just encourage you all to, to try to, to um, break that open a little bit for yourselves if you can just for your own well-being. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, um, that both now and after the intensity of the crisis is lifted, uh, can we continue to remember and act on behalf of those we have systemically neglected and harmed, that we're just you know, maybe in this particular moment, allowing ourselves to feel and to see. 
And I would say if we could, you know, if you could create a ritual every single day in which you go into a forest, which might be your bedroom or a closet even, <laughs> to have a little bit of a time away, and you just sit and know that whether we're with you in spirit here at the monastery at Zen Center and see if you can sit and feel into uh, not only your own losses, but all those behind those numbers that we, that we meditate on that. And that we make a commitment to continue to do this. It's a strange thing, and again, the heart is very complex. You know, I, I, I worry. I worry that all this tenderness and all this openness and all this gratitude and all this recognition of um, the way we've set up society will kind of go back in the background again. Our impact uh, and, and what nature is telling us about um, their ability, the, the Earth's ability to breathe again. You know, as we get to start to breathe again at the expense of who? So I'm making a vow to, to, to not forget and to continue to practice this. And um, I hope you can too. We miss you all. <laughs> and um, in this moment, I feel tremendous gratitude by seeing all your little boxes faces <laughs> and all the ones behind that. And, um, and we truly are practicing together. And um, I um, couldn't do it without all of you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.